would say two. Number one, I am now a recovering perfectionist. I grew up in a family that I thought an A minus was an F. So I wanted to get all A's and do everything right. And, and it is exhausting to try to be a perfectionist and you're never going to succeed. So I've given up perfectionism and I call myself a recovering perfectionist. And I pat myself on the back whenever I let things go and say good enough for now, G-E-F-N. So that's my number one. My second one is just, it's not about me. A lot of times people come at you about things and it's mostly about them. It's something that's going on in their life. It's probably not about you. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. My guest today is Anne Kurtz Kernian. Anne is the owner and artist of Cards by Anne, an inspirational greeting card company founded in 1986. All of Anne's cards are hand designed in calligraphy and ink and are available online and are found at hundreds of stores. For 14 years, Anne taught cross cultural understanding of religious meaning at Carlo University. For seven years, she taught courses ranging from chemistry, environmental sciences, and nutrition to world religions and ethics at a local community college. Her new book is Spiritual Practices for the Brain, Caring for the Mind, Body, and Soul, was published in October. Her first book, A Year of Spiritual Companionship, was published in 2016. Currently, Anne is a frequent lecturer and retreat leader presenting topics that combine neuroscience, positive psychology, and spirituality to groups across the U.S. and Australia. She is a former Division I athlete and teaches a weekly yoga class at a local retreat center and enjoys biking and hiking. This is a great conversation with Anne, and much of this conversation really doesn't focus too much on her books. Instead, we talk about what her current interests are, which is around neuroscience, pocket psychology, and we go in depth around nature and habits and how we can help reset ourselves so that we can perform every day and basically making time for the things that are going to improve our ability to focus and achieve the things that we want to achieve or just be more present with those that we care about. It was just a wonderful conversation at the end of the day. We could have talked for much longer than we did. So with that, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Anne. Kurtz Kernian. We are joined by Anne Kurtz Kernian. Hi, how are you doing? Great. How are you? I'm well. I just finished a, almost an hour walk in 10 inches of snow on my snowshoes, and it's my favorite thing to do <laughs> in all the world. So I am happy tonight. <laughs> That's awesome. It's probably therapeutic to say the least. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's one of the things that's been really getting to me in the Midwest here as things start getting darker earlier, it makes me less likely to go outside because I do work in the morning. So it, it was nice in the summertime because I could get off of work and there'd still be enough sun that I could go run or ride my bike, which was really nice. But oh, yeah. lately it's been yeah. a struggle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hear you. And that's what's nice about snow because it stays lighter because it reflects the light. And uh. I love that. Yeah, so I that's fine about that. <laughs> you can always put a light on top of your head too, like a little like lantern light. They sell those. Mm -hmm. So that's the other thing I'm going to start doing just to get outside more. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> In the summertime, just to maximize what I was doing, I, I would just try to get as much vitamin D because you spend yes. way too much time inside as it is. So yeah. for me, it was a double whammy of being able to get outside and move the body, but also absorb sun. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, it's so important for our mood and our just our overall well-being. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to get further into the well-being aspect, but before we get too much farther, go ahead and give a simple bio on, on a background of who you are and what do you do, Anne? Sure. My background, my educational background is I have a bachelor's of science in environmental engineering from Penn State. I have a master's degree in theology from Duquesne University. I specialized in world religions, not not specifically Catholic theology, although I did study that. I have a certificate in the science of happiness from UC Berkeley, and I just completed a certificate, a graduate certificate in positive psychology from the University of Missouri, and I plan on continuing to get a master's in positive psychology. My main work after I left engineering, I was an engineer just for a little over a year. I started a greeting card company called Cards by Anne, and I taught myself calligraphy, and I do all the designs by hand and get them reproduced. And it's an inspirational greeting card company that I've had now for a little over 37 years. Wow. And it's my cards are sold around the world in all the English-speaking countries, and we have three employees now. We did have four before COVID, but we're down to three now. But And my husband does all my webmaster and bookkeeping and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But I do a lot of public speaking and writing, and my second book was just published called spiritual practices of the brain. And what I do is I like combining neuroscience. I've been a student of neuroscience for about 12 years now and just reading everything I can get my hands on. I do. So I combine neuroscience, positive psychology and and spirituality to just show how the insights of those three different lanes, those three different disciplines, they have a lot of similar recommendations for what practices are good for our health, our minds, our brains, our bodies. So I like to bring in all of those to just help motivate people to take on these good practices that'll help all of us stay healthy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really interesting intersection for me because it's one of the things that I've actually focused on myself really heavily probably the last three years, but it wasn't until probably the last year or two years that the spirituality aspect for myself came back. Mm -hmm. Just for some background, I was raised Catholic and went Mm -hmm. through all of the CCD and all that part of it. But as I got Mm -hmm. older, it fell away and just wasn't as much of an important about my life. And I really just went more non-denominational and explored broadly Mm -hmm. with like meditation practices, like from the uh, Eastern uh, religions mm-hmm. that have become popularized in the West or secularized, really. Mm-hmm. But from your aspect, it's really interesting. You don't really hear too much of this way we talk about Western religions in the way we, with wellness, really. You don't hear that too much. Right. And so I'm just curious, like, where was the genesis of meshing them together? Because most of yeah. us resist the scientific aspect of, of any religion, realistically. Mm -hmm. I, because of my background in science and my husband's also an AP physics teacher, so we have science through our veins here in in our life. But the other piece of it is too, is that we have a strong tradition in the Christian tradition of meditation and mindfulness and gratitude, these practices that are taught in Buddhism as, as well as secularism that you mentioned. But we've there really isn't anyone right now that I know of in the Western world who is combining the science and the Christian aspect, the Christian tradition, which is what I was raised in too. I raised Catholic and went to 12 years of Catholic school, and I'm still very connected to the Catholic community. So I I wanted to make sure that people didn't have to run from the tradition in which they were brought up to go to some other tradition. Now, that's fine if they choose to, but we have a lot of richness in our own tradition, and I wanted to mine that to really show how much our tradition has, and that's what I do in my latest book, but also how this science bolsters those 
teachings so that we have a double whammy. And then the triple whammy is positive psychology, because that's a that's a very early age. It's only about 20 or 30 years old. But the research that's showing these practices, meditation, mindfulness, gratitude, self-compassion, et cetera, those are all really good for us, not only good for our bodies, but good for our spirits and our brains to keep our brains healthy as well. Yeah. And for me, positive psychology was huge at the beginning of this year. I actually read the uh, book Flourish by Martin Seligman, who is the founder of um, positive psychology. And I'm just curious, where did you find your entry point into positive psychology since it is relatively new as a domain within the psychology sphere? I think the more I read the neuroscience and the more I delve, I'm just an avid reader. And I began seeing this positive psychology, these people, Martin Seligman and others, there are people who preceded him, but he was kind of like at the watershed moment of of the positive psychology movement in terms of how it was called. But I kept reading and reading about Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, you've probably heard of Flo, he's the one who coined that term. So I kept reading about these early, early figures in the positive psychology movement. So a couple years ago, about three years ago, I decided I was going to pursue another master's degree in it because I wanted to get the credentials and also be sure that all the studying that I had done, if I, there were any holes along the way, I wanted to make sure that those were, that I was able to have those. Mm-hmm. So the idea of a engineer going into psychology is not normally what you think of <laughs> because <laughs> I love that you're laughing or theology. <laughs> or, or theology. Definitely. Either one yeah. of those, because we don't think of those categories as, as something that has any overlap. Sh- yeah. Structure or overlap or just, it's, yeah. it's like different worlds of thinking a lot of times, even for me as someone who yeah. got really into this wellness space bringing in my engineering mm-hmm. like experimental mindset into these things, it, it doesn't mesh, for, at least it doesn't make sense to the most people. And I'm just curious, because but I feel like for people like us, we can see how we can create, for lack of a better term, blueprints for people to understand yeah. and, and parse these behaviors really to actually right. apply them in their life in a tangible way. Yes, and see the logic behind it and see the research behind it. And I'm really passionate too about making sure that the research is verifiable, that it is truly published. It's been talked about among all the psychologists and all the scientists that we make sure that it is verified. It's not some woo-woo theory that somebody Mm -hmm. just came up with and decided that we're doing something that's not scientifically based. So we really need to I, I think in the positive psychology movement is to make sure that the research that is going on is verified and is make sure that a lot of other people are studying it. So that's mm-hmm. where my engineering, you know, that logical background. I know in my classes, sometimes I'm the only one standing up on the, it's online classes, but yeah. standing up and saying, hey, this isn't really, hasn't been proven yet. Mm-hmm. It's what we think, but there's still research ongoing and we can't claim, we can't make those claims yet. So I'm I'm really, I bring that sort of engineering logic and also thinking in that sort of piece into the positive psychology and spirituality. Mm -hmm. I feel like when you start getting into these wellness categories, there's a lot of claims Mm -hmm. that are made that aren't grounded. And exactly. Yes. uh, And it's like rooted in feelings a lot of times. So it's if you feel Mm -hmm. like it's doing Mm -hmm. something for you, which is placebo effect Mm -hmm. most of the time, right? Right. (laughs) then people say that if it works for you, then keep doing it. But that's... I. 
I don't like that yeah. as a metric. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And there's some good research actually around the placebo effect too. And mm -hmm. it is, there are changes in our brains. There's actually chemicals that will be produced if we believe that something is helping. And I say, go ahead and do it. But I, it may not work for me because I don't believe that. And we really have to be careful to pre be prescribing different modalities or different exercises or practices to all sorts of people if it's just working for me. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, we don't know why. It also could be just a coincidence that it's working for me. For you, or at least maybe if you're recommending to students or something like that, when it comes to taking on a new behavior or habit or some something that you're changing for that person or trying to change for that person, mm -hmm. What do you recommend for them to try out a behavior or to create new behaviors mm -hmm. or just trying to change something that say someone says, I just, this isn't working, but I want to try something new. Working yeah. out is a great example right now, just because we're almost yeah. at the new year. <laughs> And I actually, I've done some studies on habits. Mm -hmm. Charles Dewey has a great book called The Power of Habit. And I've read that and, and I research habit a little bit myself. But one of the key habits that is probably what I would call a keystone or a cornerstone habit is exercise. You, I find, and I've been a lifelong exerciser. I was a division one athlete when I was in college. I've been a runner and walker and exerciser all my life. I teach yoga now. I've been teaching for about eight years. So I'm a passionate advocate of exercise because even if you can just go for 20 minutes of a walk every day and and I advocate going outside because how good that is but just doing that winds up filtering down into other habits okay I'm walking and now maybe I'll start eating a little bit better because it makes me feel better if I walk and don't have a lot of sugar or fats in my diet and then it kind of catapults into more and more behaviors so for me just simple exercise we know that aerobic exercise also keeps our brain, our gray matter, our prefrontal cortex, which is the area right behind our forehead, keeps that area healthier. So if we want to have our cognitive functions to stay healthy as we age, the best thing we can do is to get those walking shoes on or running shoes on and go outside at least three or four times a week for 30 to 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, It's to any behavior or let me put, let me rephrase it. I think motivation mm -hmm. is finite and motivation and being all fired up and pumped up about something is only as mm -hmm. good as it stays easy. And it's when things get difficult, that's when you have to rely on how well you've put in this habit. And I think for most people, the idea of moving your body is, is if if you're not an athlete, it feels foreign. For instance, myself, I, I didn't really work out or do any sort of physical activity for the longest time. I was really your stereotypical engineer. I would rather play video games or read a book inside <laughs> than anything else. It wasn't until I was 21 that I had a friend of mine coax me into it because as many men do in college, they find the gym and then they start working out and they say, wow, this is fun. And my friend went away to college and he's, hey, you should try this thing. It, you might like it. And he planted the seed by doing that just took the science of moving the body and mm -hmm. turn it into a biomechanical mm -hmm. exercise for myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. it wound up be, becoming this like experiment for me in, in a very different way than most people assume working out to be. And so it was like, I was doing this double whammy of learning about biology and biomechanics and mm -hmm. robotics mm -hmm. in my brain <laughs> versus just like picking up a heavy weight and putting it back down again. I'm just curious if you have any other ways of reframing something so that you can make it approachable depending on the person's proclivity for the different mm -hmm. activities. We know from 
science from positive psychology and also other experiments that we need to make it, like you said, it may be great when you're first motivated, but that's why in end of January, beginning of February, people's New Year's habits fall to the wayside because barriers start occurring. So what we need to do is make it easy. So for example, if you want to start a walking program, one of the best things to do is put out your clothes the day before, the night before, get your shoes there, get your whatever you're going to be wearing, if you're going to do it outside or inside, but have everything ready so that there's no friction between when you get out of bed and when you're going to put those shoes on and go for your walk or whatever. Or make sure if you just like to do it, if you need to do it with a friend, just have a set time that you your friend is counting on you to be there to walk around the block 10 times, whatever it is. Habits are difficult if we don't. It takes about three months usually for habits to set in, to become a true a new practice, to become a habit. So you have to make that friction less as less as little as possible so that you can start something and actually be able to keep it because that energy involved in keeping something hey it's icy outside I can't work out you can go on YouTube and find a video that you can you know jump around to in your living room but having those things set up ahead of time so that you don't have to flail around and say oh I'm going to skip today and one day turns into two and it turns into a week and and then you're off the what I do is I've done this since I was about maybe a ninth grade is I exercise every day, mm -hmm. period. I just, I always exercise. And now if there's a day that I'm feeling under the weather, then I say, okay, I'm going to take off, but tomorrow I'm back at it. So mm -hmm. there's never a day that I say, I'm not going to do it. It's just part of my everyday habit, like taking a shower, brushing my teeth. Yep. And I usually work out for about an hour. That's just, and I have a busy life, but I always tell people say I'm too busy. And I say, how much time do you spend on Facebook? How much time do you spend on Instagram? How much time do you spend on watching? You have time. You're just choosing. It may sound harsh, but we're just, we choose our time. We choose how to spend it. And if you don't have a half an hour every day, you may need to just take a look at your life and see maybe, because this is a key habit that will keep you healthy for your whole life. For me, I like to think of it as like habit stacking, where when you do certain mm -hmm. activities, you block in a certain amount of time. So for me, it's if I'm going to go to the gym, I'm mostly bring headphones and I put like an audiobook on or a podcast to, to mm -hmm. like just stacking all these positive things together so that it's, it just makes that friction less. So it's, Oh, I'm doing something I enjoy working right. out is obviously you're working out. So it's like in the name, mm -hmm. but you have to right. make it so that there's a reason you enjoy doing it. Right. The other thing I would say here is to me, it's like when people say don't have enough time, I feel like it's an awareness thing where we don't realize how much time we are spending in certain activities, such as Facebook yeah. and Instagram and those other, what I call time sinks. I have my phone where I have a folder on my phone that says time sinks, which I do that on purpose. <laughs> I make it as intentionally bad for me as possible, just so I see it every time I go to that folder. <laughs> I'm just curious, especially with the documentary, The Social Dilemma, that just got released yeah. on uh -huh. social media. I've already started watching it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. As an engineer, I understand a lot of these like algorithm stuff and most of what the mm -hmm. negatives are intuitively, but I feel like the documentary itself right. is bringing people like a, to a foundation to understand what's going on for everybody. Right. I'm just curious right. if you have any like thing to add there about just awareness and use of yeah. like technology. Yeah. I'm so there's, there's actually a couple of excellent books that I've read because I'm actually working on another book mm -hmm. for teens and young adults. And one of the pieces is how much technology is affecting their brains. And there's a couple, one's called Irresistible by Adam um, Alter. And he talks about, and the other one is Cam Newton's book, um, 
that is called um, Digital Minimalism. Okay. And those, those two books are wonderful because they really talk about what goes on in our brains. Because when we get those little dings, there's a dopamine rush. <laughs> So we are truly addicted in a sense to these little pings. When I read that though, that was a couple of years ago when I read those books, I stopped having any noise that occurs when I get a text or an email. There's no notifications that are based in sound. I have to, I have to take time and say, okay, it's time to check my text messages. And I do that just a couple of times a day. I don't do it continually. And I don't know if a text is in. So I tell my friends and colleagues, if you need to reach me, if you really need to reach me, you've got to call me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be checking texts regularly or emails regularly. I'm sorry, but I do check. I do check emails first thing in the morning because I run a business and I need to check and I need to check those regularly. But if I need to be doing some serious work, like writing an essay or a chapter in a book, I put everything aside, put it out of your room. Don't even have it in the room because we know even having those devices in our room will wind up taking a little bit of bandwidth in our brains because we know it's possible that we could be interrupted and you're already partially distracted you are already partially distracted just by having that in your room so it's really good to know those things knowledge is power so making sure we know those things and if you're going for a walk in the woods don't take your phone or have or turn it off i just keep mine off i don't bring my glasses with me so i can't mm -hmm. read anything uh. about them so <laughs> If somebody really needs to get me, they can call me, but I can't read anything. It's just there for an emergency. That's it. See, that's an, that's a really interesting thing you do there because you just talked about mm -hmm. how you make path of least resistance to workout. But if there's a bad habit, you you intentionally leave your glasses behind so you can't do right. something that, that yes. it would be detrimental to the activity you want to be focusing on. Exactly. Yeah. And we know nature, if I can just say a little bit about that, I've mm -hmm. also done some research on that, we know that getting out into nature, the Japanese call it Shinrin-yoku, which is forest bathing. Mm -hmm. And we know that going into nature reduces our stress and has long-term like 30-day effects that if you spend time in nature, say just for a weekend or just every day, I live really close to a huge park that I can go into the woods. And I we bought our house specifically so I can ride my bike out of my house and be there mm -hmm. or take a quick three-minute drive and I'm in the woods. But getting into woods does so much for our inflammation. It lowers it. It increases our what they call killer cells, which are immune cells in our bodies. Certain trees give off organic volatile organic carbons that that are uh, in fact keep our um, health better so there's a lot of really great side effects for just enjoying nature so get out there and just enjoy it but if we have technology with us the effects are diminished especially just being in this time period where everyone is have relying on technology more and more to stay connected because we have to stay home for the most part right. but to realize that it, we need to put in some sort of break into the, to our schedule so that we get away from the technology, especially right. considering we don't want to leave our phone behind and things like that. It's like our tether to the world in a lot of ways. Right. So it's a hard right. thing to let go, especially. Right. 
Yeah. But again, if you can see your phone, if you're not like me and you can't read without glasses, if you can see it, turn off all the notifications. Don't even let it buzz or jiggle so that when you are in nature, and what I do is I, there's also been some research that just was published in October by University of California at San Francisco. They just published a big study that talked about awe walks, A-W-E walks, Mm -hmm. and how much just going outside and looking at nature, observing. Try not to think about all the problems that you brought, brought, bringing with you, but just look at things. So I just tend to just go today. I just noticed the snow on the branches, the tracks in the snow, the deer, the one bird that I saw, just noticing that and trying to bring all the stresses of the day with me, leave those at my car and just start walking and observing. And it's really good for our brains and our bodies. That's a really interesting point. Near me, we we're, I'm in the suburbs, so there's not a whole lot of nature, but there's some pretty big forest preserves and stuff, but there's a smaller like nature center. It's only three or four miles a lap around, but it's all like dirt tracks and stuff like that. So you can get more connected. And and one of the things that I found mm-hmm. myself doing is I would still have my phone on you, but I, my, but I have it just on, a, on an arm sleeve. So I couldn't really take it out anyways if I was running. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what I would wind up doing is because I found, found out about nasal breathing. <laughs> and so what right. I would wind up doing is just trying to force myself to breathe through my nose, even if I wanted to breathe through my mm-hmm. mouth. And then mm-hmm. it's like this forced meditative stance. And then plus being in nature, it's like all these cursory effects that I just wound up realizing that I almost craved it after a while. Like at first it was like, why am I going here? It's hot. It's uncomfortable, especially in the summer and in the Midwest. But mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. now it's because I've done it for so long and there's just like this extra element to it that you don't realize until you've done it enough. Uh, It's really fascinating, honestly. And the nasal breathing is another piece. I talk a little bit about that in my new book about um, breathing through our nose. There's a great researcher. He's really active on Instagram talking about breathing. His name is Dr. Andrew Huberman from Mm -hmm. Stanford. And he talks about how important our breathing is to our stress levels and to our brain health and our body health. And it's that nasal breathing that really keeps that norepinephrine, the the neurotransmitter at a proper level so that it keeps our brains and bodies healthy. So we really want to make sure that we do that nasal. And I'm with you, like when I read that about a year or two ago on my bike rides, even though it's tough to nasal breathe, I try to do it as much as possible because I know how healthy it is for us to be nasal breathing instead of breathing through the mouth all the time. And this is actually a funny one. You might laugh, but but I was experimenting when I first heard about this research, probably around a year ago, maybe a little bit longer, but I I wound up going on the treadmill at the gym and I would basically train myself to slowly speed up and see where my limit was, where I would want to Mm. mouth breathe. And then I would try Uh to go longer. So I would do go to right to that edge and then see how long I could hold it. And then I would keep doing that like progressively over like months (laughs) just to try and get better at nasal breathing in a weird way without just in you, Erica. (laughs) (laughs) I just love these little kind of things. It's for me, like I'm I wear both whoop and aura ring as my own little ways of checking what I do because especially Mm -hmm. as someone who likes supplements and things like that. I mm-hmm. don't trust myself to be an objective observer unless I can have something that tells me. It's one thing to sure. take a sub- supplement, but it's another thing to actually know whether or not it's doing something. So yes. it's, yeah, it's, right. it's- And the other thing about, I'll swing back one last time to yeah. the walk in the woods, um, is how much it is, it's an excellent practice if we are overwhelmed or mm. unfocused or just feel like life is hitting at us. And if you don't have woods nearby, even just sitting and looking at a house plant, 
or if you have a pet and just noticing the fur, just whatever you can that's organic around, even a tree outside of your backyard or a bird that comes, you can put a bird feeder up. Our, one of our kids lives in California and has this hummingbird bird feeder and it is the most fascinating thing. So even if you don't have a lot of nature around you, you can cultivate that in different ways and then just take some time and appreciate it because we really are, we really are calmed by observing pieces of nature. Mm -hmm. One thing that just came to my mind, I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but is there research Mm -hmm. about even just listening to nature sounds? Like I know there's playlists all over the internet nowadays where you can just listen to nature sounds. Does that have an effect? I'm assuming. Anecdotally, I know it calms people, but is there research behind that? Um, I have read some. Now, I don't want to claim that it's all verified, but mm-hmm. I've read there's, uh, there's studies done by, actually, it's Jacques Cousteau, the okay. famous um, ocean explorer. <laughs> his, his grandson wrote a book called Blue Mind, mm-hmm. and it's about how so many people live near water and how much that helps people's health. Mm-hmm. And I know I've read some studies that talk about the sounds of nature, birds, the ocean, the wind in the trees, but I haven't read a definitive one. I I can't say I'm an expert in that, so I don't want to claim anything more than what, from what I've read, but I have read, there's all sorts of apps that you can buy or else just get for free that have nature sounds. And we know those are coming to to us. I don't want, I hesitate to say anything more than that about the research, but I know for most people, it's very calming. I just was curious if there's anything you'd come across there. It was just a thought that I had if just in yeah. case you live in an urban environment it's not only lack of nerve or nature spaces around makes it a little tough for right. those kind of people right. to get away yeah. um, but here's another thing that's interesting though too the research I've read about nature and sounds and views there is some research pretty good research too showing that just viewing nature scapes on devices like a tv or a computer mm-hmm. are also helpful for our brains and our bodies. So even if it's virtual, that they see that definitely that helps people. So if you can't even, if you don't even have nature around you, watch a nature documentary. My favorite one lately is My Octopus Teacher, which I just loved on Netflix. If you get a chance to watch that, it's not a a man who was a scuba diver and a television producer, I believe he, he's a producer of some sort, and he got to be friends with an octopus. And it's this documentary. It sounds silly, but it's really, and it's lovely. And it just, it makes you feel so good. <laughs> Honestly, it's, it's great that you mentioned that because it's come up like three or four times now about not only that documentary, but just the octopus and intelligence in general. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. it's one of the things that I just find so fascinating as just, trying to understand what are, what either what is intelligence and then just the varieties of what the octopus can do because it's honestly incredible it makes no sense on some of the things that they can Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. and you watch this documentary and your mind is blown and well octopus you probably know this that most two-thirds i believe of their brains are in their their tentacles mm-hmm. their limb it's not in their skull area but the way they can change their body but also there's a one study that i talk about with people when they want to talk about octopus um, behavior is there was a zoo that had a tank of water with a bunch of octopus and the keepers of the tank would, would turn off the lights every night and then they started noticing that in the morning, the lights were on all the time. And they thought, huh, that something's, that, are you not doing your job and turning off the lights? And the guy swore he did. So they started putting like video cameras. And what they saw was that the octopus 
would take its arm, crawl up and turn the light on after the guy <laughs> left because they wanted light. And just things like that are just crazy. I don't think we should be eating octopus. Yeah. <laughs> they are intelligent creatures. <laughs> it's, it's honestly fascinating. Like there was a, it's not really definitive proof that, it, but there was a thing where they put like a floating, I wouldn't want to call it a toy, but like a bottle in the water and in one of the tanks and one of the videos I saw and mm -hmm. they noticed that the filter would knock it back across the, the, the tank. And over mm -hmm. time, some of the octopus would actually push it back to the other side. <laughs> and so it was like one of the first in quotes documented uh, cases of an octopus playing it, it's not really like it, it, there's an interpretation there, but if something's going to just move a, yeah. a, a floating object back and forth, it's analogous to a toddler pushing a ball across right. the floor. <laughs> Look at that video, that, that documentary. It is really something to yeah, see this I, octopus. I'm definitely just moved yeah. to the top of my list. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting. <laughs> it's, it's so fascinating. Just what we can learn from biology. I'm, I'm a really big fan of just biomimicry and learning from nature in, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, yes. especially what we've been talking about here, just the sun and knowing how it affects our mood and just what we can do yes. for ourselves and just being yeah. connected to the world. It reminds me too, Dr. Huberman of Stanford recommends that we should get outside just briefly every morning. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, one of the best ways to regulate your sleep is to get that light, not through a window, because it's about 50 times less through a window, but go outside even for a couple of minutes in the morning to get that sun on your eyes. And then around sunset, try to notice, try to get some of that sunset light on your eyes. And he talks about how that will absolutely help you regulate your sleeping. And of course, not looking at bright lights at night. He says, put all of your lamps, make sure at night you're not getting overhead light. Make sure all of your light is like from your head down. So it's like mm -hmm. down lighting. And then that will also help you get tired because you need your melatonin to be reset if you can't sleep at night. So he talks about that. And that's really one of his big things is how light, because he, he um, studies the eyes and neuroscience and talks about how the light that we get really affects us. Yeah. It's one of the areas that I've gotten more interested in lately. I, I typically wear blue light blocking glasses right here. Mm -hmm. I wear those basically... I just started doing this, but I used to just do it when I would be home in front of this computer. But now because I'm mm -hmm. at home most of the time, mm -hmm. I wear them as if it would mimic the sundown. So if I'm still behind a computer right. after it gets dark, mm -hmm. I wear blue light blocking glasses. The other thing is I have studio lights down here now that are warm. So I they're not okay. bluish. Yeah. They're mostly the orange lights. The yeah. other thing I do, I yeah. wound up doing too in my room, I have what's called a wake up light by uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Samsung, yep. I yep. believe. Yep. Which yeah. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was totally skeptical about it, and I was just like, "This is weird," but I'm going to try it. It's the coolest thing ever, honestly. Oh, yeah, yeah, it slowly wakes you up. It yeah. really works, and then it also has yeah. like nature sound, so it's not a jarring alarm like a lot of our phones, yeah. where it's like a mm -hmm. hundred yeah. volume. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, slowly ramps up the light and the sound effects so that it sounds like birds oh. chirping or like winds, wind or something. Right. It's really cool, yeah. and it, I think it really works. 
And why are we surprised by that? Because it, it is surprising. It's because we live in this world we're not as connected to nature as our ancestors a thousand years ago, or even a couple hundred years ago, even a hundred years ago, perhaps. We shouldn't be surprised that the nature does affect us in so many ways. It shouldn't be so surprising, but it is because we just, another thing that I, I love about nature and I've learned, and it really makes me sad right now because some of the trails that I walk on, the trees are dying, mm -hmm. is the the fungal relation, the, the fungal sort of connections underneath trees in the tree roots and how chemicals get sent to trees that are, that are, you know, a little bit less healthy than others. And they know that forests that have a lot of the older trees tend to be healthier over a long haul. But we have, there was a fungus that occurred in Pennsylvania where I live about a year and a half ago. And now many of these really tall trees, tall evergreen trees that are just, are, I'm talking like eight stories tall, wow. they are starting to die because the fungus has gotten, has infected all of these trees. And it's like a little burial ground where I'm mm -hmm. walking now, probably only about 20% are dead now, but I can tell that about 80% of the trees are going to die in the next year or so. And it's really sad, but trees rely on each other mm -hmm. to keep healthy. Um, and I don't want to uh, make them seem like they're humans and have feelings. It's just that somehow there's a chemical sensation that they can tell that this tree needs more of this and this tree needs more nutrients. So it's an, it's a fascinating study too. Yeah. Susan Smart is the one, is the biologist who's, there was just a big article in the New York Times about her work. Oh, really? Yes. What, what mm -hmm. was Just her name? Or do you know the... Uh... I believe it's Susan Symard, S-I-M-A-R-D, I believe is her. And I think it's Susan or Suzanne. Okay. And she's done an awful lot of research and it has been proven now. At first, people were very skeptical about her research, but she, she's, they found that she's been right. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> after, after a few decades of people questioning her research. Yeah. I just was reading about the but they've been coining the wood wide web, but it's the mycelial networks in the forests. And so it's, it's corroborating that evidence that I was just reading about that. So I'm going to have to find that article yeah. and link it in the show notes. Cause that's really fascinating to me. Yeah. She's something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. It's just for me, whenever I think of tree networks like that, if you're, they know that it, it's just analogous to the internet. It's just yeah. showing another way that nature has done what we've created in a different form. <laughs> right. Yeah. Her name is Suzanne, S-U-Z-A-N-E, Suzanne Simard, S-I-M-A-R-D. Cool. Yeah, you can yeah put that in the show notes. The most recent, it was like a week ago in New York Times. I'll definitely find that. That's really cool. And so yeah. for you, it's you have so many of these little different knowledge on so many different topics. How do you find what it is to focus on? Because there's so many different things, especially within the wellness space, is because you have to have a filtering mm -hmm. mechanism that allows you to, instead of bouncing around too many topics, there's only so much we can sure. focus on yeah. at any time. That's a good question. I'm very interested in the latest neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So I get daily kind of little inputs from neuroscience news and from medical news today. And I read those and then see what is the latest research. So I'm always looking for the new pieces of research that seem to be well-researched. And I make sure I go in there, make sure they are, are they true research from universities in the neuroscience news and medical news today? Those are all well-researched studies. So I look at those, but I'm really interested in anything that connects 
practices like I said, like meditation and mindfulness and gratitude and self-compassion and service, being in nature, those are like my primary practices and interests. And so I just continue to look. I don't get, I'm not so much interested in psychology like schizophrenia or type of thing, some pathologies. I'm more interested in the zero to 10, not the minus 10 to zero. So I'm looking at those because that's what really I'm passionate about. And we can only have a few passions in our life and really follow them fully. But I, what I really am interested in is what I find in academia, and I, I consider myself a little bit of an academic, is that people stay in their lanes too much and there's not enough crosstalk between academics. And so if I had to if I had to give advice to a new graduate of a college who is really smart and ambitious, I would say don't specialize, generalize, keep reading about all sorts of different things. Like in my work as someone who's a designer of greeting cards, I've found quotes on the wall of of a bathhouse in England, and I found them in the book section of the New York Times of a review. And you never know where great quotes are going to pop out there. You're not going to find them in Bartlett's book of quotations because those are ones everybody knows. I like finding (laughs) quotes. And so you've got to read all sorts of things. We have be a generalist. But also the other thing is that learn how to live without a lot of money. My husband and I were both engineers and we lived like we were paupers right away, our first year and a half of life. And then we quit our jobs and it was fine. We could live on hardly anything. We never ate out. We just, we had a daughter 15 months after we were married, but we learned to do without so that we would have the freedom to do the jobs we wanted to do. And that was a key for us. If we had learned how to live with big engineering salaries, we would not have had the freedom to start our, I would start my own business. Jack became a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I would say, tell people, parents may not like to hear this, but don't take the highest paying job just because it pays a lot. <laughs> <laughs> take a job that you love, take a, take, or, or take a job at first, if you've got to pay some student loans off, but keep working on the side on things you, that are, you're really passionate about. And I guarantee you that if you are a smart, hardworking person, you will figure out a way to make your passions work. <laughs> I really <laughs> I just believe that. So anyway, that would be, I think people stay in their lanes too much. That's in, and academics will tell you that. You talk to somebody who's, my son has a PhD in philosophy of mind, and that's a, a, a specialty that isn't specialized. It's, it has a lot of, you know, tentacles in a lot of different areas, but, but he would tell me too, that there's academics have to specialize because they have to write on specific things, but that's a flaw. And I think are to be able to advance knowledge, we have to be able to cross reference other things. And Daniel Kahneman, the great economist who has his book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, yep. and won the Nobel Prize, he, he talks about that, that we really do need to learn about all sorts of things to be really people who are engaged in the world and not just in your own specialty. <laughs> For me, I've always believed in in the idea of being a generalist, the jack of all trades, mm-hmm. master of none. Uh, I, I honestly picked engineering only because it was something that I could, one, be practical, and two, mm-hmm. that it opened as many doors rather than closing too many. Mm-hmm. I'm incredibly interested in everything. That's why I do a thing called Feeding Curiosity. Mm-hmm. Quite honestly, it was like, I just wanted to be able to do a thing that would never limit me, where I could have an interest in something that I could just go find it and then go flip over a stone and be like, Hey, there's someone doing that thing that I'm interested in. I want to go figure out more about that. 
Exactly. Yeah. And those, and you can make these connections across disciplines that having all that knowledge and all these disciplines, and there's connections to be made that the specialists can't make because they haven't read or, or listened to or learned about Mm -hmm. those pieces in other specialties. And that's, I think what I would recommend to any smart you know, hardworking graduate is just keep reading all sorts of things and and really keep trying to identify perhaps what are your passions. I don't think at 22, we necessarily know that. I think it, that develops. I don't, I really didn't really cement myself in my greeting card company until I was about 31 or 32. I was teaching chemistry and environmental science. I was teaching theology. I was teaching all sorts of different things, but until I was old enough and really knew how I wanted to work, which was very independently, then I knew how I was going to go the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. And I just recently read this probably about a year ago where, where the pre, the frontal lobe isn't fully developed until you're 25. No, so if you specialize yeah. older or earlier, sorry, you're possibly mm-hmm. selecting for something that for a person that doesn't exist yet. And right. I read the book right. Range, which is like one of my favorite books of all time, mm-hmm. which is written by David Epstein. I don't know if you've heard of it before. Oh, yeah. You would love it because it's the subtitle is why generals succeed in a specialized world. So <laughs> it is like exactly the book. Bingo. It's right next to me right now. I'm, I'm doing a very yeah. well-documented breakdown of the entire book because I just love it so much. But it's one of the things for me that I've always just thought about. And even if I think about my own trajectory, I'm only 27 Uh, right now. But Mm -hmm. when I was younger, before college, I was highly introverted. And the idea of me being a person who does interviews, if I were to meet (laughs) a younger version of myself and said, hey, by the way, you're going to call random strangers and talk to them for hours, (laughs) I would have looked at you dead in the face and said, never in a million years. (laughs) Like... Because we don't know, our, and you're right, that myelination starts in the back of our brain and moves towards the front. So the amygdala gets myelinated and all those other pieces in the back of our brain. And until we're going to the, until it comes to the front, and there's great graphics that show this, until you get to the, and the front is maybe 25, for some people it's 27, mm-hmm. We don't, it's different. And so that, and the other thing is that our hormones now are are ramping up faster because of the world we live in. And that's a whole nother topic for another time. But so we wind up getting hormones of maturation. We may, we mature faster, but our prefrontal cortex, our decision-making is not ready to take on those things that the hormones are telling us to do. It's really, you're right. We don't know ourselves until we're in our mid twenties. We don't even have all that brain structure set yet. Mm-hmm. I just think there's like another point on specialization because I'm sure you could probably elaborate further, but I think just because Mm -hmm. of the way specialization works as technology and how much time you have to put into it, especially just getting a PhD, you're looking at around 10 more years post high school to get to that point. And so for- At least. Yeah, right. At least. And so if you want to spend all of that time to do, that's fine. I I don't think there's anything wrong with it per se, but I think for Uh the mass majority of us- it would better serve our time to look more broadly and say, what are the things that I'm interested in? And look at your right. secret, you know, sauce, so to speak, of what your interests right. are and where do those intersect that you can uniquely provide insight where others may be missing right. it. 
Exactly. Yeah. And really, and I think a key part of that, what you just said is finding those things, like you said, what's your secret sauce? What is your passion? Because if you do, people love being around other people who are passionate. When you're in college or when you're taking classes, don't you just want a passionate instructor? Oh, yeah. I'll take any class from anybody. I don't care if it's something I'm not even interested in, but if that teacher is passionate about their subject matter, I want to be sitting in that classroom. I want to learn from them because they're bringing something. They're bringing excitement to their work. And that's contagious. We mm-hmm. want to be around people like that. So I think if you take on a, a pathway that you really love, I think people are drawn to you. Yeah. And I think your pathway, I think you'll find success in one way or another. Absolutely. Even in this conversation alone, I can sense the passion that you have for everything we've been speaking about because you just bring up <laughs> anecdotes and little tidbits <laughs> and things. It's, it's not, there's a level that I think when people are enthusiastic about stuff, I think there's a, some, sometimes there's a cynicism where people are like, Oh my God, why is this person so intense? When I, Mm. but when I hear someone get passionate, what that does for me at least (laughs) is that says, Oh wow. Look at how into this particular category, even if I don't really care that much about it, I can see that they get it. And there's something I care just as much about it. And I can use their energy to fuel what I care about, if that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. And you can learn. I I just love learning from people who have that sort of passion about specific things. I think it's great. (laughs) (laughs) We need more of it, honestly, because it's, I think it comes down to almost creativity or solitude or because it, at least for me, as someone who is analytical and scientific, it was almost trained out of me to think of myself as someone who is creative. It, it, like it wasn't something, it wasn't until later on, like almost two years into doing this, I'm almost three years into doing this podcast now, that I realized I am a creative person. It's just creative in a way that we don't think about it. Because most of the time we think creative is in something in art, like art, painting, yeah, no, 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 no. drawing, yeah. music, yeah. that kind of category. And I'm curious if you have anything to add there. <laughs> oh, I have lots to say about creativity. <laughs> I give a whole workshop. I give a workshop in that. In fact, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who is the author of Flow, he also wrote a book called Creativity. Mm. But I actually took a whole graduate course this summer on creativity. And, and I've given talks before about it because people think, oh, so you're an artist and you create. But all of us create in one way or another. If Even if you just like to... Um, connect people with one another. That's a creativity. We pigeonhole creativity into this art sort of thing, but creativity exists everywhere. Somebody who's writing, somebody who's speaking, whatever, there are creative actions taking place. And one of the things that is really hurting our creativity is how much we're going to swing back to technology now, how Mm. much we are tethered to our technical, to our devices, because um, Cam Newton says in his book, I want to make sure it's Cal Newport. Sorry, it's Cal Newport in his book, Digital Minimalism. Mm -hmm. He talks about how we don't have, we are not separated from inputs from other sources. Like almost all day long, we have other sources inputting us. Mm -hmm. And that winds up stifling our creativity. We need space. That's why walking in the woods or just sitting and meditating, having that space where nothing is coming in, but just we're just sitting and things filter in. When people say they don't have time to meditate, I sometimes tell them you don't have time not to meditate. (laughs) 
because the insights that happen just from 20 minutes of meditating, and you may not feel it when you're sitting breathing, but maybe later on the day, something will occur. But if you really dedicate yourself to 20 minutes of meditation a day, I guarantee you, you will wind up having insights and effects somewhere along the line that you did not, would not have had you not dedicated yourself to those 20 minutes of just simply meditating. And, and that, that solitude and that just sense of winding down, pushing everything aside and just being still, that's a great thing for our brains and our creativity. It just, I don't know how people, if I know that I need to create something, the last thing I can be is be busy. I, if I'm ready to create a card or two, I have to just do nothing for a few days. And by nothing, I don't mean not anything at all, but just not be on a treadmill doing a lot of different things. I have got to slow down so that I have, so something decent comes out. Yeah. I can resonate with that so much as someone who is so used to being busy or almost enjoys being busy to a fault. It's something that I've forced myself to to do. It was actually through podcasts that put, that meditation even became on my radar because I'd listen to so many ex experts and CEOs and say, yeah, I work out or I either meditate or do some sort of like solitude like activity, even if it's working out, that is like, right. can, like separates themselves from their normal routine. And I was like, right. okay, if these people who are like making the most amount of money in the world or just in quotes, the busiest people in the world can set away, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day, then so can I. And right. yeah. it's been yeah. one of the strangest experiences to actually feel that. I've gone down the rabbit hole with it in the sense of just doing guided meditation, using apps like Headspace or Sam right. Harris's, right. but then I've also mm -hmm. done the float tank. And I've done mm -hmm. two hours almost, maybe three, okay. I might have a third, yeah. which was yeah. like the idea for someone to know me and to say, yeah, I just sat in a, you know, a salt tank for five, for, for an hour is, is crazy yeah. <laughs> to have nothing yeah. to do, but to just be there in, for an hour in the dark alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And the other thing that's really interesting is that you are training your brain right now by doing that. Mm -hmm. Your brain is being trained. And what I find, and here's how I've trained my brain because I've been, and I've been, I was a long, I was a distance runner. I was a marathoner mm -hmm. when I was in college. And so when I had my kids, I never got any, anything. I had all natural childbirth because I learned from that training to just separate my pain from my experience. So I would just breathe and just say, put the pain on the right hand side of the room and say, okay, it's over there, but I can just breathe through this. I do colonoscopies now with no, I have to have one every five years because of family history and I have no anesthesia. Wow. I just watched I watched because you're able, and they show this with Buddhist monks. There's a lot, you wind up separating pain from, you may feel it, but you don't doubly react to it. Oh my gosh, I'm really in pain. You just accept it and say, okay, there's pain there, but it's going to go away. And you just disassociate from it. And you really can handle things better because you say, okay, and it might not be physical pain. It might be emotional pain, but you just take the sense of observing it and saying, okay, I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling rejected. I'm feeling put upon. I'm feeling angry. And you observe that emotion. And so it doesn't overwhelm you. 
Yeah. And so the pain will overwhelm me. The pain will just, it'll just be something there and then I'll be finished with it. Mm-hmm. And so you just, you wind up learning how to deal with pain in all sorts of ways. And that comes through a, the, the, the practice of meditation and just learning to let go of thoughts. As you practice that over the years, then you wind up letting go of all sorts of things like pain, emotion, pain, anger, etc. And I struggle with trying to give people explanation for it because it's something that it's subtle. Like even if you just say like you do five, 10 minutes a day, I've noticed Mm -hmm. in myself that if there were moments where I would get frustrated, annoyed, or even unfocused, like I remember one time I had a coworker trying to talk to me while I was trying to set up for a test at work (laughs) and I was trying to get ready because there was going to be a customer on site. And I was like, I can't worry about whatever you're trying to tell me right now. And I remember just stopping what I was doing and say, if you keep talking to me and asking me these questions right now, I'm going to get upset and I don't want to be upset at you. Yeah. And then I, by just saying that, I diffused the whole situation and he stopped and he said, oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. the strangest thing ever. Yeah, you get some clarity by taking those moments. It's very interesting. That's a very interesting phenomenon. And I think everybody learns in different ways from meditation. And the thing I would love to say just real briefly about mm-hmm. meditation is everybody tells, because I've taught that in different classes, everybody says they're terrible at it. They can't do it because their minds wander. <laughs> That's what minds do. You just, did you learn how to ride a bike when you just first got on a bike and said, boom, sail down the road? Probably not. So it's just a skill to learn. It's a muscle to be trained like anything else. You've got to work at it. Mm-hmm. And it may be, I've been meditating for 40 something years and I, I'm still not an expert <laughs> in it. I still, you know, there's, I'm still a beginner. So you just, you just, and some days and weeks and months, I'm distracted still. And mm-hmm. I keep, okay, back the breath okay back to the breath but it's just a training that you do so no one is an there may be olympic champions in meditating but i am not one of them (laughs) but you just put yourself on the cushion and you say okay today's a new day i'm gonna just sit here and breathe a little and you just learn to the, the the point of meditation is not to have an empty mind the point is to be aware of your mind be aware of your thoughts and then perhaps letting them go as you're aware of them i think that's probably one of the best ways I've heard it explained for me, it's just, no, it's not the point that you have to be contending with everything all the time. It's just, Hey, your mind's going to do what it's going to want to do. And it's training the subconscious to just let it go, Mm -hmm. not be like, find the shiny thing every time. So it's for me, it's also like, imagine yourself sitting in a living room with your good friend, but the windows open and there's all sorts of traffic noise (laughs) on that street. So in meditation, it's you're talking to your friend. And so you're sitting and meditating, but you all this traffic noise is going on behind you. I'm wiggling my finger behind me right now. <laughs> you know, and all that, but eventually you don't even notice it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you're just focused on talking to your friend. And that's what I think meditation is sometimes. You, oh, you're aware that there's something going on, but you just keep coming back to your friend and talking to your friend. <laughs> yeah, I, I think honestly, that's a huge metaphor to just what, this year has been like for a lot of people, there's been so much going on in the Mm -hmm. world and so much chaos. And I, I think something like Mm -hmm. that, just to ground yourself in what you can control or what you can do to be the best person you can for those around you is at the end of the day, the most you can do because it's, there's so much going on and there's so much that seems like end of the world or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. that I, I think it, it's, it feels daunting, right? Like it's just, everything's it going crazy and like, what can I even do? I'm just one person. And, and like, right. it feels right. like that is like the yep. one thing you can do and to me right. in some ways. 
And you don't have to, if you find you can't sit, do walking meditation. Mm -hmm. You can, I walk around when I'm agitated and I feel like my body just can't settle. We have a meditation room in our house and I just walk around the five by nine row. Mm-hmm. And I just walk real slowly or I'll go on a walk in the woods real slowly. You can you move your body then because your body can help you calm too. Those are just little tips that might help people. Yeah, definitely. It was one of the things that I heard a lot of people say when I was like, I did a lot of research just trying to understand anxiety and depression and, and things like mm. that. And, and it was one of the things that seemed to help a lot of people was getting out of the mind and into the body or vice versa. Exactly. Yes. So, and that's always come back to me. If I feel unfocused or something, I just, all right, you got to move. You got to get this out of your, (laughs) got to move because that's one. And that's what we're built for as human beings. We are mammals and and moving is what helps calm us. So I'll either do yoga, go for a Mm -hmm. walk, stretch something just to move. Especially if you're doing anything creative, I would say, unless it's a sport, you have to be sitting and or writing or something like that. So you can't Mm -hmm. be doing both at the same time most of the time. So it's a balancing act for sure. It's finding that sweet spot that works for you. And a lot of times my best creative ideas happen when I'm walking in the woods. (laughs) They do. Like when you're in the shower, when you're not doing that thing, boom. Mm -hmm. There's it's, a whole brain study on that, but we don't have time to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. I mean, you're not the first person to say that too. I've had a couple of people on here before who've said the best things that they come up with are either running or doing something moving or shower. It could be any activity where you've like shift to the subconscious to some degree. Right. It's really interesting. Right. Brains talk to it. Talk, the different, different parts of the brain are talking to one another. <laughs> And I know we could spend many hours talking. We just hit the gas and kept going here. This has been fantastic. Yeah. I just love this. It's so refreshing to just have these kind of conversations, especially with the limited interaction that is 2020. <laughs> um, yeah, I, know. <laughs> I know we've mentioned so many books in this conversation mm-hmm. alone, but is there any mm-hmm. other like favorite books of your own that either you've gifted to people or ones that you find yourself coming back to? There's a couple of poets who I love, and I, I hated poetry in high school, but I love David White, W-H-Y-T-E, okay. He's, and I happened to meet him on a ferry in Washington State, which I loved. Um, John O'Donohue, I love his work. I love Mary Oliver, her poetry. I love Thomas Merton, who was the Catholic monk. He was way ahead of his time, and he was into both Zen Buddhism, but he was also obviously a, a deep Catholic. I, there's just... There's so many books on my bookshelf, but he, the other person who I absolutely love, and he used to buy my cards when he was alive, is Mr. Rogers. Wow. I love Mr. Rogers. I'm also a connoisseur of graduation speeches, and if you have never heard him give his graduation speech to Marquette College, Marquette University, Google it and find it. It is spectacular. I will definitely have to Google that one. I have not heard it, and it can't go oh, wrong. Yeah, it's it, sounds, it sounds amazing. I thought you were going to say David Foster Wallace, This Is Water, but... <laughs> oh, oh. I love that too. Yeah, that, that's the Kenyan, Kenyan University yeah. speech. Yeah, but <laughs> that's yeah, a- and then George Saunders' speech too. His is a great one. Oh. Anna Quinlan has a great graduation speech from Holy. I can start all all down the graduation speeches too. But anyway, there's some good ones out there. That's amazing. I love that. And then second last question is: Do you have any new mm-hmm. belief or behavior, maybe in the last five years, that has most improved your life? I would say two. Number one, I am now a recovering perfectionist. I grew up in a family that thought an A minus was an F. 
So I wanted to get all A's and do everything right. And, and it is exhausting to try to be a perfectionist and you're never going to succeed. So I've given up perfectionism and I call myself a recovering perfectionist. And I pat myself on the back whenever I let things go and say good enough for now, G-E-F-N. So that's my number one. My second one is just, it's not about me. A lot of times people come at you about things and it's mostly about them. It's something that's going on in their life. It's probably not about you. Yeah. And actually, I'm going to throw in a bonus one here because I just thought of it. And I think you'd have a great answer. But if you had a giant billboard and you wanted mm-hmm. to get a message out to the world or people, what, what would mm-hmm. it say? Be kind. Because everyone you meet is maybe facing a struggle. So just be kind. And I couldn't say it any better myself. That's great. And <laughs> just as a final closing, where can people connect with you across the internet, Anne? Sure. I have my Cards by Anne website is www.cardsbyanne.com. I'm also on Instagram, Cards by Anne. I'm not a big poster because as you can tell, I'm not really digitally, I, it's a distraction. But I also have an email. I'm happy to always answer just Anne at cardsbyanne.com. Awesome. And I'd love to, if people want to ask me a question. And I, on my website, there's a list of all the different presentations and retreats I'm giving. And my book is there. LoyolaPress.com also has my new book, Spiritual Practices for the Brain, Caring for Mind, Body, and Spirit. Sounds good. And I'll put a link to all your places that people find you on the show notes so they can have access to that really easily. And this has been yeah. a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the Thanks time. Thanks so much. This has been fun. It's been sure. great. <laughs> Take care. Good luck in everything you're doing here. It's great. Thank you. I wanted to take some time here and talk about how you, the listeners, can support Feeding Curiosity. I've always believed in providing more content to whoever listens to this of value than what you'd ever pay for. I don't like the idea of having to sponsor myself with products I don't use or believe in. If it's something I use and believe in, then sure, I will talk about it and I will do everything I can to do that. And I've done that on this podcast before. Not sponsored, but I've talked about many products that I believe in. But in the aims of choosing to create a new model that I believe in and that we should all be striving for is breaking ourselves away from the subsidized model that ads provide. And so with that, We have turned on the uh, anchor.fm support structure, which allows you, the listener, to subscribe to our content at the level of your choosing. That is either a $0.99, $4.99, or $9.99 a month, meaning that you, the listener, and me, the creator, can be transparent about how much value you see in our content. And by doing so, that allows me to have more resources to ever increase the quality of this content and that's not to say i won't be doing this anyways but it breaks me out of the loop of having to worry about those things because there is a lot of time that goes into this podcast but i love it and i hope that by you choosing to support the podcast you know how much i care about the quality of this content and so with that everyone thank you all for listening and i hope you enjoy